Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. People would say to me, oh, it must have been a difficult job working for United and, you know, with Sir Alec Ferguson, where the, the demands and the expectations are that high. Absolutely not. It was an absolute joy. I loved every minute of it. I've never felt any moment of anxiety like that. I think, oh my God, I better get this right. Never. And that was just because how he, he managed. A quick note before we start, this episode was recorded at the Batch Bottle Store and Deli in Altrincham in front of a live audience. So please stick around after the interview for a special Q&A section from the crowd. Enjoy. Welcome everyone to TGG's first ever live podcast show. Uh, I'm Josh Schneider-Weiler. Uh, to my right is Simon Austin, the other host tonight and founder at TGG at Training Ground Guru. And next to him is Rennie Mullenstein, who is the assistant manager at Australia. Uh, Rennie has worked around the world in a lot of different countries, uh, Israel, Russia, Denmark, Qatar, um, so well-traveled coach, but you guys probably all know him from his time at Manchester United, where he worked for 12 years under Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, started as a youth coach and then as a first-team coach. Uh, so that's a little background about him, but we're going to get into his background a lot more uh, coming up. Um, so thank you again uh, for doing this, Rennie. Uh, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm good. I didn't know I was the guinea pig, to be fairly honest coming on your first live show, but uh, someone has to do it. So now I'm fine. I'm good. And you coach of us, assistant coach for Australia, but you actually live locally, which might surprise some people. Yeah, yeah. I get that question a lot. The people say, oh, you're, you're far away or a long way, aren't you? I says, no, no, I'm I'm still in, in, in Wilmslow for some reason, uh, you know. I, I, I seem not to get away from this part of the of the world. Now, the reason why we, we chose this format is the, the national team coach, Graham Arnold, is obviously Australian, lives in Australia, so he covers that area and the Far East. We've got a lot of players playing in, in Europe in different countries. Um, before COVID hit, that was ideal. So I traveled a lot to those countries, to those clubs, to see those players in, in, in the club environment. And when COVID hit, that really threw a spanner in the works. I mean, it stopped everything. We all know how how, how bad that has been. But um, thankfully, we're back to, to normal here, sitting here talking, enjoying the pint. And, but yeah, so I've always here. So I only travel to, you know, when FIFA games, um, FIFA windows, wherever I have to go, whether that is Australia or anywhere else in the world. Yeah, brilliant. And how have you found international football compared to club football, where you've predominantly worked? It's a massive, massive difference. I mean, club football is, you know, um, 24-7, um, especially when I when I was the first team coach at Manchester United. And I do sometimes say to, to my son, Jop, who's now worked for Stockport, is that when you're in there, your hard disk never stops. You're, you're, you, you're, you're constantly thinking, even when you go to bed, about it could be training sessions, games, solutions, whatever it is, and it never stops. It just keeps on going. Uh, international football is goes in, uh, well, in pockets, really. Um, you know, when you get together, you have to really cramp in a lot in a short period of time. Um, I first-hand experienced the last few months that 
when we could play home games again in Australia, what it means when you have to travel 23 to 24 hours. Now, I always rock up about four, five, six days before. So I've got time to, you know, to climatize. But the players, a lot of times, rock up a day to day and a half before. After 23 hours of travel, then I have a session and a half. And then we need to try to get them prepared to play such an important World Cup qualifier. So it, it is chalk and cheese. You can't, you can't really. And my influence in club football was, in that respect, much bigger because I could really address things on and off the pitch with players. So how did the job come about in the first place? Um, Graham, well, I got to know Graham. Graham played in Holland uh, in the 90s, I think, for two clubs, uh, Roda, JC and Nagbreda. Uh, Graham was a striker, uh, a bit of a, a, a raw, old-fashioned, you know, like stuck his head in everywhere and kick everybody. But he was a brave player, scored a lot of goals. Uh, so I knew about him, and then he came to Manchester United for his pro license, so his, his foreign thing. And uh, he had to do, you know, a script on it. So he stayed with us for about a week, I think. And uh, so Alex always was very kind to to always push me to those people to say, can you look after them? And um, and which we did. So, uh, you know, Graham spent some time. I took him to one of the reserve team games here in Altingham. Uh, first, first thing what I did was, we were about 45 minutes for us. So what do you do? Come, let's have a pint. And then sort of the guard comes down, you know what I mean? And that's when we really started to hit it off. So we stayed in touch ever after that. You know, he managed in, in, in Australia very successfully, as well as in Japan. So we were always sort of talking or speaking about things football two to three times a year, if I knew players or etc. And then he rang me in January 2018 saying, listen, um, I'm going to do the Australian national team after the World Cup. Would you fancy doing it with me? Now, I have never been to Australia, so I just needed somebody to pay for the trip. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. But uh, no, it was, it, was, it was just something I've always wanted to do, work on the international scene. I mean, uh, we're still not there yet. We've got two World Cup uh, playoff games to play against the UAE in June. If we win that, then we have to play Peru. But I would absolutely love to, to experience a World Cup. Superb. And they're in June, are they, those two games? Yes, yeah, 7th, 7th and 13th of June. Right. Superb. Um, and I wanted to go right back to the start of your coaching journey. How did you first get into coaching? And what age were you? Um, I'm born in, um, in Holland in a small place called Bogen. If anybody knows a little bit about the Dutch map and you've got the bigger cities of, let's say, Nijmegen, Venlo and Eindhoven. I was sort of in that triangle right there close to the German border. Nothing, anything specific to, to, to shout about, but Holland has got a very good infrastructure in terms of football. Every, every little village has got its club and training fields and everything. And like I said, I, I grew up, like so many other young kids, wanted to be a professional footballer. However, it was really strange that very early on, I felt, you know, a passion for coaching. And I think I was 16. And one of the, the local guys that, I don't know, I think he was a teacher, he had a like a, an under an under nine team, he says, could you help me out? You know, it's a little bit too much for me by myself. Which I said, yeah, it's fine. I was on a football pitch anyway every day. And so I did that. But after three weeks, through work commitments, he couldn't do it anymore. And I just carried on. And uh, and I've, I've never stopped. So I've basically been into coaching from the 16 years of age, yeah. When did you know that you would become a coach like full-time professionally and your time as a player was you know, finishing? Um, I mean, I, 
I always knew from that moment when I started coaching that there was only one thing I wanted to earn my money in, that was football. But I also knew that where I, where I played, where I grew up, and I didn't really have a chance to, to push through into like a professional level. We had, at that, that particular time, we had a very good group of young players locally. We, we actually played with our local team always in the highest division. So we were actually competing against bigger cities, bigger teams, and we did well. Scouting at that time was non-existent. I mean, even, even NEC Nijmegen would scout whatever, half an hour around the city and everybody was doing it. Now there's, you know, no player, you know, in the world that is not going to be, uh, is going to be on scene. So, um, but I always, I also felt an urge. I've always had an interest in traveling and I also felt it's probably not going to be Holland where I, I'm going to be able to, you know, to succeed in it because I knew that eventually if you want to earn your money, you need to do, be able to do the pro license. And I also felt I need to stand out like other coaches. There are too many coaches go to courses and they just believe what the people of the, the, the federations tell them. I, I was never like that. I was always more a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a rebel. It may be interesting because I brought these things actually with me here is that this book, for instance, here, this is actually where it all started. This book here, I got it in 1985. And on the back, you see a coach called Curva. You probably heard of Curva coaching. And if you look in the book and you see that, you know, see all these pictures, what he did, there was no video then. It's just moves, you know, four steps of moves. But it, the, the thing was, I saw the book into a bookstore in my next door village. And the biggest thing, what I did, and you can see that I underlined a lot of things, I read the preface. And I thought to myself, flipping act, you don't need to have or go to university to understand what this man means. And it was very, very simple. Just look at the best teams, look at the best players, and especially in the attacking sense, you know, when he went back to Puskas, you know, Di Stefano, Beckenbauer, Cruyff, Charlton, Eusebio, George Best, and so on. And they all had the ability to dominate the 1v1. So what he did, he analyzed those players. Cruyff was famous for his Cruyff move. Rivellino was famous for his step over. You know what I mean? And all that stuff. And he then thought, this is what we need to teach the young kids. And that is where basically my philosophy stems from in terms of how to develop players, young players, but also how to add something to senior players, what I did at Manchester United. And then we had another massive icon in Dutch football, Johan Cruyff. And I've always lived a little bit like mixing the two, blending the two together. Develop the players as Curva sees it, and make him play like Johan Cruyff sees it. And that, that's what I always try to push, push together. And he actually became a friend of yours, didn't he, Bill Curva? Well, I wouldn't say friend. Was it not? <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I, eventually, uh, and that's, that's my step, and <clears throat> I got the book, and then he, he, he spent a lot of time uh, after his active coaching career in Holland abroad, and he ended up in the Middle East, uh, in Dubai. So after these, this book, he had another book, um, he started to make a range of videos. First video range was Holland, one, two, three, go. Uh, then he went to Dubai because he needed people that would fund the project. Um, there were the so-called, uh, what do you call it, uh, the Dubai videos. And it was all based around, for him, technical development and repetition. What can you do with two players, three players, four players, six players, eight players? But what can you do with two players, you can do with four. What you can do with three, you can do with six. 
was four and eight. And the only thing was, was all about making sure that you create repetition. Repetition. And that's why he had always, the KVB never embraced it. Because the KVB came up with Mikkels at the time. Now, now we need to play 4v4. And of course, Curva was all about 4v4s as well. But it was all about 1v1, 2v2, 3v4, 4v4. But Curva basically said, yeah, hold on a minute. You can play 4v4 all your life. But if you cannot beat a man in 4v4, you will also not beat him in 7v7, 9v9, 11v11. You have to have the tools first. That is the big difference. And he felt creating a really structural environment where there's a lot of repetition, and then you get them into the game scenario. Otherwise, you miss out on a thing. How did it get to Curva? That's an interesting story. Yeah. Is <laughs> because of this video. This is, the, this is the original video I made. I was, <clears throat> I was at that particular time um, on the SEALs in Arnhem, which is called the Central Institute of Sports, and I managed to get in through the back door. I wanted to get on it when I was 18, 19, but there was a lot of politics going on and a lot of uh, people that sort of got accepted and a lot of, and a large group didn't, and I was part of that. So I tried to find ways to get in, and eventually I, I got, uh, and it's mainly maybe a, a red threat through my career because I don't stop anywhere where the door is closed. I, you know, where people then turn around, oh, it's closed. I will walk around until I find something, how I can get in. And that was exactly with, with Curve. It was exactly with the director at the time of SEALs, Anton Brouwer. And I, I rang him and I says, I need to speak to you. I know you're school, you're busy, but tell me where it is and I'll be there. And he believed me and he helped me. So he got me into the SEALs. And this was basically the final project, the subject, because I said I need to do something, you know, special. And this is a video made with uh, 12, 13-year-olds of NEC Nijmegen, where I'll basically explain what Curva means, what should happen in the world of football. And one day, <clears throat> we've played with NEC in the morning against the Graz Cup. We won 9-3 or something. And this guy, and I was standing watching the under-18s. And this guy comes and taps me on the shoulder. He says, uh, oh, Rene, that was, uh, that was amazing this morning. And bear in mind, I was working with NEC at that time about seven, eight months. So the boys really made progress. He says, you can really see it coming off. Great, skillful players. It's fantastic to watch. Bada, bada, bada. So I said, yeah, I can't understand why the whole of Dutch football, the KNVB, don't embrace it. Because we would, we would get such a, an advantage to other countries, not only in Europe, in the world, if, because we got all the facilities, the infrastructure is right. We need a better product on the pitch. And then this guy stood next to me, big guy, moustache, and he says, well, who are you to claim that? He says, it doesn't matter who I am, but let me introduce myself. I'm, I'm Ronnie Mullenstein. I'm coaching the, the under 12s, 14s here, and I believe strongly in this and da-da-da-da. And then I had a chat with him, and he was one of the biggest journalists running the biggest football magazine in Holland at the time called Football International. You must know that. <laughs> he's, now, he's now a big TV pundit. And he said at the time, when you finish your video, come, come and see me. He wrote the preface in this book. Yeah, okay. And he said, come, come and show me the video and I will try to help you. And he then got me the video to Will Curver. And then I met Will Curver a few weeks down the line. And then I moved to Qatar to work with him for four years. So, and they were difficult years, I have to tell you, with him, working with him. It wasn't easy. So I wouldn't call him a friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then how did the move to Manchester United come about from Qatar? But whilst I was working in Qatar, the under-17 national team coach at the time was Dave Mackay, the former Tottenham and Scotland legend. Yeah. And he was my next door neighbour, you know, him and Georgie Blues. You know, every night we would walk across and, uh, and play, uh, play bloody dominoes. And, and Dave, Dave would have a massive pint glass of white wine and ice cubes and a straw. And then he would lock the door and he says, nobody leaves until I win. And uh, those were great nights because he had fantastic stories. But when I met Dave back in England, I stayed at Dave Mackay. And Dave set up a meeting with me and Les Kershaw, the academy manager at the time. And so I had a meeting with Les. Um, I spoke to Dave about it. I never asked him for a favor, but, you know, obviously that a few weeks went by. And then Dave, Dave Mackay rang me in, in Qatar. And he says, I ran here, Dave here. He says, has Sir Alex Ferguson rang you? And I started laughing because the only thing he would do is taking a mickey every time. You never knew he was serious. I says, no, he hasn't. He says, but I've just hung up on Prince Charles. <laughs> and uh, he says, no. He says, no, I've bloody just come off the phone to him. He says, have you given him the right number? He said, what do you mean? He says, last time I was with you, I told you the Qatar added a five, you know, country code, five, five. All oh, right, that must be it. And anyway, 10 minutes later, so Alex Ferguson rang. And that was weird. Just weird. Hello. Hello, Danny. So Alex here. And uh, it was a meeting, talk for about 20 minutes, talked about everything and how well Dave spoke about me. He's, you know, because I worked with him. And, and he says, can you come over? I says, yeah, probably in January if, if that suits you. Yeah, fine, no problem. And then obviously I came over in, uh, in, in January, um, spent about five days at the club, spoke to everybody, met everybody, did about four training sessions for different levels. Um, and, and that was it. That was the start. Right, okay. And uh, what was the job that you came in to do? Well, Les Kershaw was, was, was good because obviously the, the, the void they had was they had all the, 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 the academy with everything, with the development centers with all the young kids, access to young kids, but they had no technical development. And they were looking for a technical coach and they couldn't find one. So that's why they rang Dave, Dave Richardson. And Dave said, yeah, I've got one, but he's, he's not English, he's Dutch. And that's how, how, we, how we came about. So he came up with the title skills development coach, which was good uh, because also what I think Les was really good at in, 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 well, in listening to me, he says, if you put me on one particular team, we won't have the effect if I can be spread out, because I need to basically as wide as I can, it's like a pyramid thing, the more the better. And I need to educate coaches, I need to educate parents, I need to, that's the whole scope of the thing. Um, but yeah, that was, that, was, that was brilliant. The last day at Carrington, I'll never forget, was uh, before I flew home. He says, come on, let's, let's go to the manager's office and, uh, and say goodbye and see what he thinks of the week and everything. So we walked in. And I, I always remember seeing the, uh, the Champions League, the replica of the Champions League standing there because that was 99 and that, that was 2000 when I was there. So, uh, so we sit there and have a chat. And yeah, it's, it's been very, very good, Rene, and got a lot of good feedback from all the coaches and the staff. And uh, Les, how many years have you been with me now? Ah, I know less than maybe one year less than you, maybe at that time, probably 16, 15, 16. Great. He says, uh, well, anyway, you've been absolutely useless for the 15 years, but g give this man a job. So for me, that was like, 
great. Mm-hmm. And then he said, there's one thing, however, about you Dutch. And he says, he says two things, really. He says, one, you, you always know to think you know it better, you know, because when all the English agree, you go, yeah, but. Huh. And he says, and your English is so damn good. He says, I'm telling you that half of my players cannot understand me because of my accent. And I said, yeah, that's probably why you're so successful. And it's interesting, obviously, what a legend Sir Alex was then, but he was still very involved then in the recruitment for the academy and he spoke personally to you and he'd come and watch, wouldn't he, quite a lot as well? Yeah, yeah, no, he was, he was, he was, he was great. Everybody knows how important, you know, as soon as he came to United, he knew that he had to upgrade the academy, which he did with Brian Kidd at the time and how much, how much effort and time and everything that stood in it. But if you move on. You have to always think you are where you are. The, the key to successful management is, is to anticipate and that you are in the right place in five years' time. And when you're there, again. So I said to Sir Alex, I'm here really, basically. You've had already a lot of success. The key for us is now is, is to maintain that success, making sure that we can develop players that can meet the demands of the modern game in five to ten years' time. Because things do change. Um, and yes, he came to he came to Littleton Road a few times. He came to the Cliff uh, a number of times to, obviously, to see what we were doing, the environment we were trying to create, um, which was important because the moment he showed his, his his support for that program, it also takes a lot of doubters away. When when you when you come, that's why I, I never like to um, use the word change because if you, as soon as you come in with change, people go, oh, hold on a minute, what what, what have I done wrong? What, 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 what do we need to do different? I always like to, to use the word add or improve. Those are two positive words. Yeah, we've, we are great at what we got. But if we add this, we get even better. And if we improve on this, we get even better. People are more receptive to it. But the fact that the manager was so strong in that message took all that resistance away. You know, and all the likes of, you know, you know, Danny Welbeck, Tom Cleverley, now Rashford, and, you know, obviously uh, McTominay and all of them. All of have come through that 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 program really. Yeah. And how did you find him when you first met him? What was he like? Very engaging. Um, yeah. Very, uh, you know, great sense of humour. You know, like I said, people say ask me. I mean, in the beginning, I didn't have too much to do with him. There was only a few moments that you really engaged with him, sort of. But he was always showing his interest whilst I was working with the academy. He obviously was. Later on, I sort of started to work individually with first-team players, mm-hmm. which he had to be agreed on. So the first one was Diego Forlan. Diego felt a little bit lost when he got there. A great player, you know, quick, two feet, but really didn't have anything, you know, like to use it. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't playing at the time because we had, our, you know, our fellow countryman, Ruud van Esteroy, that was scoring, you know, every week, if not two. Yeah. Um, and, and Jago was obviously, he could play different positions, but we had world-class players in every position. So, so I started to work with him. And again, it speaks volumes for Sir Alex to say, yeah, go on, let, you know, get on with it, no problem. And then later on, when people starting to see, hey, flip that, you know, this, he's, really, he's really improving. And then other players came, you know, Finisteroy came and then 
gigs he came and bit by bit I started to do more and more and more. And then I came almost sort of a go in between, especially with players that were coming back from injury before they go back to group training. They had about three, four, five sessions with me. Mm-hmm. Or when players stayed behind and the reserves were doing something different, again, could I pick them up? Ideal for me because you can get, you know, you've got quality contact time then. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff. yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting that because, I mean, you're working with people like Paul Scholes, weren't you? Is at the peak of his powers, Ronaldo. Um, and you're saying we're going to do skills coaching with you. And you'd imagine there could be a bit of resistance to that for saying, look, I've got the skills, I've got yeah. 100 caps. Or- yeah, but if I would say to any player to say to you, you or my player says, Simon, would you become, would you like to be more unpredictable in your forward play? What would you say? Yes. <laughs> well, I can, I, can, I can give you something, I can add something where you become more, <clears throat> more unpredictable or whatever it is in your given position. But players always remember, Players, the right ones, the right professionals, they grab everything that makes them better. You know, if they don't see the sense of it, if they don't, if you if you talk nonsense, you've got no chance. But if you can, if you can show them and the reasons why, and you can back that up, because you have the technology, you can show in the video, look. Because there's too many one one-dimensional, one-directional players. And what I mean by that is, let's say if I've got the ball, I face that way, nine out of ten players will play that way. But the solution is there. Now, how can I how can I go there without me losing the ball? You need a skill for it. Could be an inside hook, could be an outside hook, could be a flip behind, just a little thing to quickly change the angle of attack. Because the moment I go like that, the whole opposition does that. So the spaces are there. That's what good players do. Yeah, it's just another element of you know um, unpredictability. And unpredictability is a package. And if they understand the package, well, it's whilst they're playing, they can pick the right answers all the time. If it's one touch, if it's holding on to the ball, is it a long switch? Is it carrying the ball? Is it maybe taking somebody on? Because I would look at someone like Paul Scholes, 2006, and think he was pretty perfect, really, as a midfielder. But what would you work on with him, for example? Particularly that. Like, say, yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. instance, if, 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 Paul, if, if anybody would... See, the biggest, the biggest thing what top teams and top midfields have is, is rhythm, when they have possession. Rhythm and they they and when you build up, you've got a different rhythm. That's when you get further up the pitch and it gets more congested. You need to be able to change the rhythm. You need to be able to go one touch rhythm, pass a movement. The aim you have to understand is the aim. Why why you're having possession? Well, you, whether you want to create an extra man, you want to get you want to break the lines. You know what I mean? Anyway, eventually you want to you want to hurt the opposition, get in behind them, create chances to score goals. But the one thing with Paul was rather than if you would receive the ball, let's say from Gary Neville, so to speak, from this end. You know what I mean? Rather than basically just pop it off that way, you know what I mean? We worked a lot by one touch around the corner for somebody coming in the pocket or change out, go the other way, bang, and go that way. You know, and it's because every every position in the pitch, whether it's the the the, the right back, left back, centre backs, they've got, they get into specific areas of the pitch in specific situations where they can use it. Same with the midfielders. Same with the, the number 10s or the wingers, you know what I mean? So every 1v1, every player needs to be almost a specialist in the specific 1v1 situations. We were re- recently speaking with a skills coach in the Premier League um, who's now in, in Sweden, and he was talking about as important as it was working one-on-one, everything had to be kind of in a team concept and that 
that went through kind of everything. How much did you work with like Sir Alex about including kind of that skills coaching into the overall team philosophy and team dynamic? Well, one cannot be do with the other. You know, there's no point in isolating a particular skill. It's like taking a piece out of the jigsaw, but you don't put it back. You know what I mean? So that, that jigsaw puzzle won't, won't look fi finished. So you need to take it out and put it back. That's the game, the game situation. For me, initially when I worked individually, I could only do that by sitting down with them and, sh and show them and analyze video footage to say, look, this is the situation here. And not long, I would only pick maybe four or five moments just to go over it. Look, this is the same situation. Look what you do there. Same situation. Look what you do there. And then eventually when you do the right thing, you can say, look, look what you do now. I look the difference. Oh, yeah, yeah, fantastic. When I got promoted to first team coach, it became much easier because now I was in control of running the whole session. So I in integrated that whole thing within the particular sessions, what, what I did. See, the big, the big difference with working with such a high-level quality players at the time that what we had, we had you know, so many world-class players right throughout the team, from the goalkeeper, defence, the whole way lot. You can't, you can't work with those players in a standard way of coaching, you know, especially here in England, the sort of stop stand still scenario. You know what I mean? That doesn't work. These players, you need to, you need to basically inform those players and then facilitate training sessions where whatever you want them to do will be, will be in, that, in that session that they can obviously uh, need to be a level of repetition. Uh, and then you need to let the players take control, take ownership, because that's, that's how good they are. You know, I don't have to, you know, tell sports goals or show them, you know, how to hit an 80 yard. There's no one better in the world that can do that. I would just have a quiet word with him and say, Paul, this is all about getting kicks in the pocket and get Evra over the top. And as soon as you get it from that, you look for in the pocket or over the top. They know, I, I talk to them, so off you go. That's all you need to do. And then when it works, you say, yeah, thumbs up. That's yeah. it. And you did a lot of work with Cristiano Ronaldo, didn't you, at that time, on his finishing? Yeah, well, it, it, with Cristiano, that was the moment when he got, um, in the beginning of the season, I, f I forgot, the, I think 2008. Got about nine. 42 goals, didn't he? 2009, yeah, but that yeah. was when he got suspended in, in the early parts of the game. So, uh -huh. and, and then United was playing week, week to week in the early parts of the game. So, uh, when United obviously, you know, got preparing for the game, there was like, say, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days on a trot, I could work with him. And he was, you know, and that must have been added up, and probably some more, so added up about maybe 12 sessions. And, you know, I just felt with, with Cristiano at the time, <clears throat> very talented, um, very, very motivated, very committed. But I don't think at that particular time that he was aware, never mind, he didn't understand. And that's the process I wanted to bring him from unawareness to understanding about how could he become a more prolific goal scorer than just score the old goal. So that is a process that was happening off the pitch and then obviously in training on the pitch. Because you, you, because when, when players start to believe and, and, and have the proof in the pudding, then the progress goes, goes like that. But it started by, <coughs> by asking him <clears throat> one of the first sessions what have you, have you set your target for this season? And he looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, how many goals did you score last season? He said, 23. I said, that's great. He says, but I would assume 
the way that you are, you, you want to become better. So, because what would you, what would you think? Um, and he said, 30. Okay. And he says, what do you think? I says, well, I think 40. He says, but that's nearly double. I said, yeah. He says, but we haven't worked on it yet. That's why I think it should be double. He says, but have you ever, do you, do you know the power of aims and target setting in people's lives? That people that have aims and targets are so much more successful than people that don't. So I showed him that particular thing. He says, it's good to have that. You stick to your 30. I go for 40. But we're going to now uh, categorically work on, you know, because at the moment in time, you are Cristiano Ronaldo that loves to score a goal, but it needs to be the best goal of, of, of the season. It needs to be like a 30-yarder in top corner. So how many of those are you going to score? Uh, it's, it's not about that. That goal you will score anyway once or twice a season. It's about the quantity, you know, your variety of goals. So I produced a video. It's about, I don't know. It wasn't that long, maybe eight minutes, maybe, whatever. But it was all goals scored by um, uh, Cole, York, Sheringham, Solskjaer, Finestroy. Pro pro prolific strikers, all of them. So I said to him, look at this, look at these goals uh, and tell me what you see. So I looked at the goals and it's just a fantastic video to watch. You know, just, just by sheer, you, you get carried away. You don't even see, you see goal after goal after goal. <laughs> he says, what did you see? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, you saw, I don't know how many goals, they're just in eight minutes of all prolific goal scorers, but what did you see? I don't know what you mean. He says, well, we're going to watch it again and now I want you to, to look where, how, what. And when he looked at it and he said, yeah, now I know what you mean. It says it, a lot of one-touch finishes, most finishes are in the box, uh, and there's a massive variety. You know, there's tap-ins, there's, there's shots, there's headers, there's volleys, the whole lot. It says these are the three things we're going to work on every single day. Mm. And that's how we started it. So in one way, I wanted to bring him mentally from awareness to understanding and about how important it is to have these aims. You need to have an aim, and then you fill in the targets. Yeah, because you don't go from one day to the next from 23 to 40. No, you go 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. So in all that, you need to improve. And uh, by January, end of January, you had 20, uh, 30 goals. 28th of January, you still remember the day. Yeah. So, so what are you doing now? <laughs> I said, well, I have to go for yours to try to get to 40. So he did. And that was a year, obviously, when they, uh, when they won the Champions League as well. Yeah. And uh, Chelsea, and he got, what, how many days? 40? I think it was 42. Was it? I thought even more. Was it? Anyway, yeah. But uh, fantastic, because for me, the only thing I needed to do was, in certain times, just feed things back to say, look, there's, there's the last eight goals that you scored. Mm. Look at him. Bang, 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 bang. And it says, every time you score a goal, it's like you're carrying an invisible rucksack which is full of confidence and belief. And the thing is this, is that the more we practice in all these goals, there will not be one chance coming to you that you're not already scored on a training pitch. And as you scored it on a training pitch, you put it on your hard drive because the moment when that ball comes, in a split second, you know exactly what to do. And I worked with the shooting zones. Yeah. I worked Where with- Where you'd split the area into different split, zones, yeah. different finishes. Zone one, yeah. zone two, left, zone yeah. right, and zone three. So zone one is the best zone to score. Goalkeepers in the middle of the goal. 
you can have everything low or high, whatever. But as soon as you go to the side, you know, the goal never moves, the goalkeeper does. And you need to know where he is. And then you need to have a different kind of execution. But if you then, again, back to the skill work, if you have to beat an opponent that's in front of you, it's better to beat him on the inside because you get into zone one, you've got more areas to score. So all that process, that was an on ongoing thing. And uh, yeah, it was... Uh, the, the provers in the pudding for the boy, he's done brilliantly. Yeah, definitely. That's like a little bit of an early version of expected goals, is it really? That was zone mm. one. What, what do you think of all that now? The data? Well, data is, is, is good. It should, be, it should be used, but it should be used in the right way. Um, I think a lot of times it's misused. Yeah. You need to make sure that you've got your own principles of play. I can remember when I first came to the first team and, uh, you know, Numbers don't lie, but if you can't see through these numbers, because you've got a certain way that we we wanted to to play. Like I, I, people ask me all the time, because where, where's United's identity now, and what is it? And I said, actually, if you look at Liverpool now with Klopp, or you see Pep Guardiola, Liverpool is very dynamic, direct, energetic, high tempo, intensity. Pep Guardiola is knee knee hole surgery, yeah. Tick, 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 tick. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We were a bit of both. We had a mix of both. We could choose both. If we had teams like Bolton or, or Wigan or Stoke that were all money, everybody behind the ball, we had to revert to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you were all on one pitch. There was no spaces to run into. You had to constantly drag them in, drag them out, get them one if you want, two if you want. But we played other teams. It's more open. Like Arsenal, for instance, we were like the... The red, Transition, the, the red arrows, yeah. you know, and it was quick, dynamic, uh, intense. So you need to know that. And if you know that, if you know what your trends, your trends you want to be, the stats should follow that up. They should back that up. But a lot of times people say, give an example, player, player A has got a 95% pass completion. 95. You think, well, he's good. And then player B, he's got... Uh, an 88% pass completion. So everybody would think player A is better than player B. Well, it's not the case because player A only passes the ball over five to 10 yards. So he never gives the ball away. But player B hits constantly 60, 70 yards where there's a bit of risk involved. But if the ball gets there, it's an attack and maybe a goal. And if you can't see that, you, you can go completely wrong yeah. on, on the stats. You have, to, you have to put them in perspective to what you want. Yeah, definitely. And the big figure that we talked about earlier, Sir Alex Ferguson, what made him so special? You worked on the inside with him. What were, what were the secrets, the traits? It's all written in my book. Is it? <laughs> Have to get it out, yeah. <laughs> it's all right here. It's a, it's, a it's a coach's book. However, I, I do think it's a really interesting book for, uh, for fans to read because what I, what I tried to capture in the first paragraphs really is what were the parameters why we were so successful? And Sir Alex Ferguson, as you said, he was the driving force behind it. So it has to start first and foremost with his, his personality, you know, and his character, what he brought to the table, and his determination, his drive, you know what I mean? He knew exactly what he wanted, and he just needed time, because we all know he started in 86, and before that, that really train started to, to go and gain momentum, we were six years on. That time is not given anymore now to nowadays managers. He got it, he got the support, he got the resources, and then it went from strength to strength to strength. That's the first thing. The next thing is, is that obviously he's 
is add obviously good knowledge about the game, great expertise, and a lot of experience. So when when eventually they started, because when I came in, that was in 2001, yeah? So he, he was already there then 15, 15 years. One, I don't know how many uh, Premier Leagues already then and then. So he was vastly experienced about the Premier League. He would say things to me that I thought, I thought about, where do you base that upon? And it was purely because of the experience, how well he knew the Premier League. He, w- he would say, for instance, uh, by the end of January, if we are no more than five points of the leader, we're we in a good position. Something, something like that. I thought, you know, I mean, because he was so, he, 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 he was, yeah, he, well, he knew the navigation system of the Premier League so well. So that that's important. Then the next thing is, is all about getting the right people around you. I think people that been with United, he, he used to say, uh, you must have heard it, um, when he came to United and he would have said, when I joined United, I only had six or six or eight people. Now I've got more than Marks and Spencers. So, yeah. but they all need to be managed, you know, and making sure everybody pulls in the right direction. So bring the right people in. Yeah. Then I, I felt what is very good f- from him. He had the ability to go with the times, you know, to adapt to, because if you look at him when he came in the eighties and he's built three successful teams. Yeah. So when he finished and the, the, the Fabios and the Raphaels was there, it could have been his grandchildren. Yeah. So you need to go, you know, adapt with the times, adapt with the technology, even though he was maybe not great himself with, with, you know, with a, with a computer or an iPad, but he had people around him that were, yeah. you know what I mean? And he, yeah, yeah. he would grow with it. Yeah. It's like having you as a skills coach, isn't it? Yeah. Or having Tony Strudwick yeah. as yeah. head of performance. Yeah, but it's, it's very it, innovative. Yeah, 100%. And, 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 and all those things, you know, out of the team talks, you know, you know, especially now with all the technology that you got, you know, that's one of the things that I said, yeah, we, we need to, we need to, we need to use this better. But yeah, well, you do it, no problem. You know, he still had his things with the tactic mm. board and he got his points across, but mainly the, the way that we presented, you know, um, we had all the meetings chopped up, you know, in, in various meetings. It was an introduction meeting, who we playing up against, what the trends, da 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 Then eventually was how, how did other teams beat them, you know, where are the weaknesses and all that. And every, every single thing was backed up after, backed up or done before training sessions because then this is what we do and these are the reasons why. Mm. And then eventually it was all about us. Like I said, 75, 25. 75, 25, 80, 20, whatever. No disrespect to other opposition, but we were, we were Man United. You know what I mean? They have to worry about us. And that was all about how we're going to win the game. How we will win the game. That was a statement. Bang. You know what I mean? And that was reinforced as the last meeting right before right before the game. Because believe it or not, that's really he he would hardly ever, uh, hardly ever anybody would know the lineup uh until the day of the game. I hardly ever played an eleven aside that I knew this is the lineup that's going to play on the weekend. Because he didn't want he didn't want that. He didn't want the players to think I'm not playing or I'm playing. He wanted to have them on his toes all the time. Um, so that was that was important thing. So like I said, personality, commitment drive, as expertise as knowledge, bringing the right people in, adaptability, man management and delegating, especially in the in the last phase when I was there. He was very good 
in, in delegating it, things to me in terms of the training sessions, to Tony Strudig in terms of strength and conditioning, Simon Wells at the time for the video analysis thing. They're all closely linked, but it was, you know, it was all, you deal with that, now that's your expertise. He never lost control. He knew exactly what was going on, but he trusted us. And if you feel that trust, it's, 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 it's hard to describe because people would say to me, ah, oh, it must have been a difficult job working for United and, you know, with Sir Alec Ferguson where the, the demands and the expectations are that high. Absolutely not. It was an absolute joy. I loved every minute of it. I've never felt any moment of anxiety like that. I think, oh, my God, I better get this right. Never. Yeah. And that was just because how he, he managed and how he was with everybody. Mm-hmm. He would, every, every single session before, he, he would walk in a lot of times a bit earlier, he would walk in, he would always walk past you quickly and tap you on the shoulder. Well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That surprised me actually when you said what a good laugh it was. And I was actually looking for photos ah. for an article. There's loads of him ah. laughing with the staff. Ah, and we don't think of him like that. Ah, it's just, yeah. it was just... He, 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 was, he, was, he was, yeah, he, he loved a good crack, honestly. I always, always had jokes and, uh, and, and, and coming on or, or riddles that we couldn't solve, you know what I mean? Um, once we, and we used to go in, in away games, we obviously what would get the train. And uh, the, that's the only time he was angry at me, by the way, because normally I would pick him up if we, if we would go in, uh, in Macclesfield. And this time we were leaving in Macclesfield as well, but he never asked me to pick him up, so I had no idea where he was. And when the, when the Virgin train comes in, it, it's just a split second, <laughs> off he goes again. So I walk in and I was always sitting on the table with Simon Wells and the manager opposite us. He wasn't there. I <laughs> said, where is he? And, uh, oh, fuck. So I walked to the back, McFeelan and, 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 and uh, Albert the kit man. This is, it's, have you seen the manager? Is he, is he on the train? Well, I've not seen him. Ah. Phone rings, Albert, Albert Morgan. Albert Morgan. Albert! <laughs> Where the fuck are you? <laughs> what did he do? He drove earlier to Macclesfield, sit in the car park, listened to the horse racing, because he had a horse running, and forgot about the time. We all got a hairdryer, all of us. Well, one of the riddles was he would used to sit with us, and then we would go to the game, and then we would have a meal. Players would eat at seven, and we as the staff would eat at eight. And the good thing about that was, again, another really thing that always stuck to me. I hardly ha- ever had any formal meetings, like when he said, everybody in the room sit around the table and all that. Hardly ever. Uh-huh. Every, everything that got discussed was informal. It was, let's say, on the training page, all this, or around those meetings on the dinner table. Okay, you know, right. I was, I yeah. was a going doc, yeah, great, blah, blah, blah. What about this, that, that, So everybody, knew, you know what I mean, what was what was going on in, in an informal way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of, one of the riddles, and it's, 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 it's a dull one, but I always forget, he says, because, you know, what really struck me always about him, the amount of knowledge this guy had about everything, movies, uh, songs, politics, history, honestly, he, everything, anything. So at one point we had it, we talked about movies and what was the best movie and all this and that and the other. So he came up with this riddle and he says, you have to solve it. He says, which actress, uh, American actress, wore the same coat in every movie she played in? Oh, bloody hell. So we start throwing names, Clark Cable and, and all this, that and the other. No, 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 no. Anybody knows it in here? Nash? It was Lassie. <laughs> <laughs> the dog. 
<laughs> and that's the sort of thing you would have to And how did it come to an end at United? Could you have stayed on after Sir Alex? Uh, it came a bit, a bit to a, an, 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 uh, a surprising end, let me put it that way, because uh, the phone, my phone rang, or t text message went, uh, it was 11 o'clock at night or something, and for whatever reason I looked at it, and it was Simon Wells actually that had a golf day uh, with the players and say, text me, listen, um, a lot of players thinking of Mr. Alex Ferguson is leaving at the end of the season. Do you know anything about it? And I didn't even answer it. I thought, I don't see much, much about it. And then obviously my neighbor texted me, is it true? And I thought, hold on a minute, where the smoke is fire. So I got up and I looked at the iPad and Jesus Christ, it was all over the place. You know what I mean? So Alex Ferguson retired and oh my God, didn't know anything about it. Nothing. No, really, not, he'd never mentioned it. Not so. me, no, we were fully in talks with about going to Australia on pre-season. He was taking us to the to the to the famous vineyards and this and that and the other and I don't know whatever. Not a clue. And not me. Oh, wow. Not Mick Feeling. Not Eric Steele. Nobody. Wow. But anyway, for me, I, okay, you know, I, it was it wasn't it, it didn't really sink in to what sort of consequences it would have because I'm honest and sure if you would have carried on. If he just normally just would have carried on because a lot of people after that he left were talking about, yeah, but United was an aging team and all this and that and the other. I'm telling you, if he would have carried on, we would have made another astute signings again and we would have been up there again to win it again, 100% sure. Because you can't, you know, because everything was going perfectly. And how, how, how did it come about that I didn't stay was a bit of a an awkward scenario because basically we were made to believe, listen, nothing's really going to change. I mean, obviously it was very clear that David Moyes was coming in. He was bringing Jimmy London as one of his guys. But as far as we know, we've had a good chat with David and he knows how important you guys have been. So I, I can't really see anything happening on that end. Now, it couldn't be further from the truth because later on I had two meetings with David Moyes and I basically found out a lot was going to change. And also in terms of my own thing, you know? And I was basically squeezed into a corner because I was trying to find answers. How is this gonna work? And I, I, he couldn't explain that to me because basically he was saying, oh, well, everything what you guys did, I'm gonna do that myself. Well, what do you need me for? Well, McFeeling, he didn't keep on. He didn't keep Eric Steele on, you know? So then he brought his old people in and suddenly I was there, the only one left with all of them, not a problem. But how is this going to work? And then we came a little bit in a situation where, I, I don't know, it's always guesswork, but, you know, um, it was probably, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it, it was clear to me he wanted to do it in his way with his people. Yeah. yeah. Which, in hindsight, looks like a mistake. The stuff that he let go and then what happened well, afterwards. It's one of the things I discussed clearly with him. I, I, I almost begged him. I said, please, David, listen to me. He's only one year older than me. Right. It says, just go and sit in Sir Alex Ferguson's chair. Just sit there, enjoy the view, and let us just carry on. And we will find your way in, because I'm telling you, it is different. Yeah. And I think in your six years on the first team stuff, four Premier League titles, Champions League, uh, Club World Cup, which I think is the most successful period in the club's history, Obviously, since we've had no Premier Leagues, no Champions Leagues, nine years, did 
did you ever envisage that that would happen, that we'd be where we are now? No, not, not, not to this extent. Uh, because I can still remember, I can still recall a conversation I had with, with David Gill in 2011 in pre-season. And I then actually said to David, listen, your biggest challenge is to manage Manchester United beyond the departure of Sir Alex Ferguson. And there's only two ways in doing that, yeah? One way is he says goodbye and out he goes and you bring a foreigner in or somebody outside, which probably means that there's going to, a lot of change is going to happen, um, which means that the two main biggest pillars of any successful organization in an alpha ball are stability and continuity. Continuity has to do with the vision, which, which then is linked with your identity and culture. And stability is with the people that you've got. Those two things. The moment you start changing that, one of the things is going to go. The vision might change, people might change, and suddenly you start, you get a disbalance. If you keep Sir Alex Ferguson and you make him part of that transition and you do it from within, then you keep those two things in place because in the machine room, nothing is changing. You just need to bit by bit start to manage who's going to be the figurehead. You know what I mean? And that was only the two ways, but obviously David made his announcement even before Sir Alex Ferguson, so he was already gone. So he wasn't able to, to basically control that transition period either. Mm. And, and, and obviously, you know, David was given his freedom by, by the Glazers and said, you know, do what you like. And then before you know, and, and that, is, that is the whole thing that has happened with, with, with United at the moment because of, of all those nine years, people are, there is no stability. No. There is no continuity. Right? What is the identity now where we desperately looking for what we always had. We know exactly what we're going to get. My, my biggest compliment ever I've ever had was from an Arsenal fan. When we beat them, I think, A2. And I saw him at the local pub after because I had some friends over for the game. He says, hey, you were first team coach, man, no, no. I got absolutely fed up with you a lot because you're beating, beating us every time so easy. And I said, you know what? It's so easy because Wenger has only one plan. There's only one way. And we've sussed it, how to deal with it. And if he doesn't change, we do the same thing every time. So you get the same result. He says, I am an Arsenal fan, but I have to say, I love, I love to watch you guys play. That was the biggest compliment. When other fans of other teams say that. And unfortunately, you know, that is what we have to say now sometimes when you look yeah. across the road. Yeah. It's not what we want. Yeah. And you know Eric Ten Hag fairly well, don't you? No, oh, very well. I've, I've know him. I know of him. I know. Yeah. I actually did. Uh, I went to visit him in in, uh, in Munich when he was there, uh, working as an assistant with uh, Pep Guardiola. So I had a week with him there. Um, not a surprise that he then eventually wanted to do his own thing. Got to uh, to Utrecht as a coach first, and he did well there, and then to Ajax, and he's done he's done extremely well because Ajax was a little bit of a in a wobbly situation when he when he took over they, and they've got a strong identity strong culture and all that but it shows again you have to you need to have the right the right people the right support the right resources the right structure in place and if that all pulls in the right direction um you know you 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 have a you have a, a successful one yeah and is he the magic bullet for united do you think does I, everything go right well with that's him? fucking fingers crossed i hope so <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> if, if, that were, if that would be a magic bullet, then uh, now it 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 will be it will be. People say yeah, but it doesn't matter whether you bring an experienced guy in or an unexperienced guy. You know he will have his his challenges, which he will, and I'm sure he's the sort of guy that if 
thought it over and through and through. He knows exactly where, you know, you know what it is um, and where they are. What he has is a very, very strong way of how he likes teams to play. And I think he's got the right way of in getting that across. You know, first of all, you know, make, make sure that you've got the right personnel to making sure that you do that. Um, and then he has to make that transition from the Dutch Eredivisie to the Premier League, because which is different. You know, in the Dutch with Ajax, he can turn up uh, against a team that is in the in the right on the right hand side, uh, and he win those games on sixty to seventy percent. In the Premier League, that's impossible. So he has to re-establish a level of belief and confidence back, not only in the players but in in all of us, in the fans, in everybody. Yeah. You know, to 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 say, yeah, quite. You know, and now give him give him time, give him the support, and and then the thing is this: the only thing, the only medicine, is that he, he needs to. The people start to see, yeah, I can. See, but he needs results. He need a run of results, because when you get that, you know, you start that that confidence will come back, and that 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 sort of thing that you, that United always had will will come back eventually. And you've been linked with actually going back as his assistant. Is there any truth? Yeah, any chance of that? that's just a scattergun approach from the media, right. because obviously I, thought, I don't know in the Dutch media there has been something said. Oh, he brings a Dutch assistant, right? Oh, hold on a minute. Who will that be? Oh, he's worked with Steve McLaren. That's that's a good headline. Huh. Uh, Robert van Persie played. Yeah, made that. Oh yeah, Randy Moose is there as well. All right, so we've got a few. So that's where it is. There's no. At this moment in time, no truth in whatsoever. Right. Okay. That's fantastic. Thank you, Rene. Thank you. Obviously, you just spoke a bit about the individual coaching. So, how was the individual's needs identified when you was at Man United, and how was they then developed, as in within the training cycles? With first team players. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I um, I see that um, I have to actually go back to uh, when Fergie called me in in his office about uh, when he promoted McFeeling to assistant manager, me to first team coach again. A, a, a brilliant piece of management, really. Uh, because when those things happen, uh, Carlos Kiros obviously left, media jumps on, speculations, whatever it was. And it was exactly in the week of an international game. So everything around club football dives down. The media goes with England. What does he do? Make feeling assistant manager, Manny Munenstein, first team coach, and basically not a beep. <clears throat> but what he did in that week, he brought me into his office and he said, uh, he said, Rene, he says, uh, if I close my eyes, I says, I don't have to talk to you about how you're running your sessions. It's absolutely brilliant. But when I close my eyes and I see the best United... In every aspect of the game, this is what I see. So he went through, he had it on a flip chart, and eventually he came to, and this is the most important part, he said, this is when we are attack. And when I see United attack, I see his attack with pace, power, penetration, and unpredictability. And this is what I want you to instill in that, in that group of players every single day, no matter what you do, whether it's a possession game, a conditioning game, a finishing exercise, whatever. Now, that's the element there, right there. Pace, power, penetration, unpredictability. That is also captures the identity of United, what we, what we stood for. But it, the, the unpredictability thing is the biggest thing because that's a package. That, is, that has to do with the movement in the ball or away from the ball. That has to do with uh, one touch or 
you're taking the touch or running with the ball and all that. But more than anything, it's about in every position, what do you do when you get put under pressure from an opponent? Have you then got the moves and skills to get out of there? Or do you just hoof it and hope for the best? Now, at the level of Man United, that's not good enough. So in every specific position, I would look at it and I would say, for instance, I worked with Gary Neville as a right back, Wes Brown as a right back. So you face down the line and suddenly you got pressed from your the left uh, opposite winger. And then what are you going to do? That line is blocked off. There's no pass forward. So nine out of 10 players then, oh, well, just get rid. And I just wanted to add something to these players to say, no, 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 why don't you do a stop turn or a Cruyff turn or whatever move suits you to come back out, give it to Rio and start again. You know what I mean? And that's what I did. I made an analysis of every single player in what one of you wants he would come. Let's say there's a ball over the top. Rio Fernand, Davidis is sprinting back, but there's a striker up his ass. The striker is gambling if it goes back to the goalkeeper. You make him believe you go back to the goalkeeper because then he will go. Little step over, come out the other way, problem solved. Yeah? But if you haven't got that tool, he will play it to the goalkeeper. You understand? And that was my main work to again say to the players if we can add this to your game yeah we can improve this then he feels you know no problem if he's on the press I know exactly what to do As the coach how would you also implement change within the game so uh, team structures or personnel how would you look to if it's say a game not going your way how would you look to change that from the sideline as a coach in a game during a game yeah if you go out you know it's going to rain you're taking an umbrella with you when it starts raining what do you do Job done. Same with football. Prepare the team, prepare the players for change. Listen, guys, this is the plan, right? This is how we set off, whether with a back four or a back three, whatever happens. It all depends because it starts with nil-nil and during the game, things change. You go in front, you go behind, whatever it is. There's so many variables that paint the picture of the game. Is it a normal league game? Is it a home game? Is it a away game? Is it a semi-final of the Champions League? Blah, blah, blah. So many things going in. Make sure they are prepared, they're ready. They're ready for that job. If we do this, then everybody everybody knows their job. He, do, he doesn't get a, a nosebleed or suddenly because I want him to bring, play in the pocket rather than on the line. He knows. And the guy behind him knows, okay, when he does that, I have to stay wide and go. You know what I mean? That's the biggest thing. And explain them why in part of the preparation of when, how you're going to beat opposition teams. This is what we expect. You know, blah, 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 blah. These are the trends. You know, this is where we think we're going to get successful. But if anything happens where we need to do something different, then we, 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 go, we go to this. I mean, it's all... <laughs> There's also a chapter in there about Fergie time. Yeah? And, and that was all about a lot of times where we did, where I called it scenario football. So we, we, I created uh, uh, scenarios where we said to one of the teams, he says, listen, <clears throat> you guys are 2-1 are up, 50 minutes on the clock. You want to hold on. This other team, you need to score twice to win the game. So you make those tactical changes within a game scenario. And then you let the clock run down, right? 50 minutes, extra time, 20 minutes, basically. Not too much to worry. Keep doing what you're doing. It's fine. Now, but if we go, for instance, from one striker to two strikers uh, and we maybe drop both of the wingers in the pockets and we push the fullbacks on, now suddenly we've got a whole lot of players in and around the box. So 
We're going to push them. We're going to push them back. Hopefully, that's what we expect. And then you start to think, okay, 10 minutes to go. How many balls should we get in the box? So from 10, 10 minutes quality, you should get at least, at least six. And within that six, you need to at least get one or two top goals going chance to score a goal. You would expect to score a goal. Now the clock is ticking down. So there's only five minutes left. How many balls can we still get in the box in five minutes? Three to four. Yeah, within that three or four, again, we need. So it's all about quality and patience. But if people have a plan, they maximize the time that they've got. If they don't have a plan, it's going to be hit and hope. What do you think is the uh, greatest achievement by a Dutch team? I really suggest you guys go on YouTube and type in Holland 74 pressing game. You piss yourself laughing. I'm telling you, you piss yourself laughing because there was no video analysis at the time. There was nothing. The opposition didn't know anything what to do. But you watched that hot Dutch team press and they went all 11. I mean, not four or five, all 11 they went. And it worked. It worked. And it was, and, and, and that was the one thing that changed. And then the other thing was changed. It was that total football concept where obviously we had Johan Cruyff as an exceptional player. He was a striker, but he was never in, in that position. He was all over the place. Johnny Rapp came in there. Then Suby uh, run down the line. It was a great, great mix. So basically, that what happened in the 70s about club level, all those good achievements came to fruition in that 74 World Cup. And I, I honestly think, yeah, well, it's a shame that the Germans won it. Um, and I still remember it. I'm still sick to the day of it and when I see it. <laughs> fuck me. You've played with some unbelievable players over the years. Did any players that you felt like you know, I always felt that uh, we all know the important goals that uh, Kiko Makeda scored for us against Aston Villa and Sunderland. And uh, he was he was a talent. He had everything going for him, good physique, quick, goal scorer. He just didn't have the maybe the wrong surroundings around him, and maybe his own personality, mentality. Because you know, I can remember one incident. He came to me. He says, "Rene, why, why are, like Giggs and Scholes and Neville? They were always having a go with him and Kiko this, Kiko that. And why do you always shout at me and all that?" He says, "Listen, believe me, you should be happy to shout at you, because the reason why they shout at you because they believe in you, what you can do. If they don't shout at you, forget it." You, you're not, you, you won't make it here. But they can see what you can do, but there is something that they're not happy with. You know, your, what is it? You know, your attitude things or the way you respond to certain things. So he was, he was one of the ones I think that, you know, and I said it, I, I remember when he scored those goals, I said it to Kiko in the boot room one day and he was smile all smiles because he got all the compliments and you know, he ran in the stands with his dad and the whole media jumps up and all that. You need to be strong as everything to be able to deal with it and give it a place. And I said to him, what is, is this gonna, is this your claim of fame? You know, this is where you end up on the back page of the other the newspapers and Kiko this, Kiko that. Look what skulls and gigs and what they've won. Title after title. You know what I mean? You've just done one thing. Two goals that maybe help us win the title. What's that in, in, in the big scheme of things? This is the starting way. This is this, this is your launch pad. Nothing else. You know, and it's it's whether you jump, you go on, or you you fall down. Some people say that 
They think Rooney had greater talent and potential than Ronaldo at 18, 19, 20. Is that fair, do you think? Mm. I think in terms of talent and potential, they are very, very similar. I think with Rooney, his main underlying motivation was enjoying playing football. That was his biggest thing. And play as many games as he can, score as many goals as he can. But that enjoyment, the, the, the enjoyment, the, the, the love for the game, where Ronaldo, his underlying motivation was, I want to become the best in the world and nobody's going to stop me. And he, he, he invested that within his lifestyle, you know, within his, in his diet every day, his sleeping patterns, his strength and conditioning training and all that. He, he was he, he just, just all about achieve, 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 more, 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 more. Where Rooney was all about enjoy, play, enjoy, play, enjoy, play. In terms of uh, your opponents as a coach, um, which team's tactical philosophy or, or tactical identity have you found the most disruptive or, or difficult to, to overcome? I think in my, in my time at Manchester United, at least, it was, there, wasn't really, there wasn't really any, 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 we knew what we were up against, but there was not one opponent that we would thought, that we were thought tactically or football-wise, oh dear, oh dear, here we go again. If we, we knew that if we would go to Anfield, it would be difficult just because of the atmosphere, the hostility and everything and all that. Not, not that it would surprise us, you know, tactically or anything. We knew what we were, what we were getting when we had to play uh, Bolton at home or away with Owen Coyle especially, stay with the runners. Bolton was all about um, creating um, fouls. You know what I mean? No matter where on the park, fouls, big Davis up front and... Launch it. So well, where did we train on that week? Don't give any fouls away. Don't give any corners away as much. Give us give a give a, uh, a throw in away, but no corners. No, no. Even if don't even tackle, just shadow, because they 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 wait for the contact and they go down. Don't no no contact. They have to find a football solution. Even uh, Champions League wise, um, we were we were we were always, and it's easy really to say at the time but you don't really realize it but if you are in that winning sort of momentum you know constantly that it breeds that level of belief and, and confidence and it was just all about making sure again it was all about us 80 20 75 25 no disrespect to opponents but we always wanted to be you know on the on the you know on the front foot you mentioned guardiola before i mean you lost two Champions League finals to Barca. Like, did you did you feel like that was the, the best team you ever played in that, at yeah. that time? Yeah, although in Rome, he, they were not yet at the peak. I think in Wembley, they were better at the, the peak as such with all the players. Um, with Rome, I think that if you look at the quality that we had and, and even what we had, I mean, honestly... There wasn't there wasn't a bloody tackle in the first bloody sixty minutes, you know what I mean? It was it was like a, a game, you know, a game a game of chess, and then two good teams, you know. But it's 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 moments that then decide the game by the individual quality, which obviously which which obviously fell to them. And then you can always go in hindsight. Hindsight is a great thing, and say yeah, we could have done this, should have done that. I thought in preparation towards Wembley. 
again, I thought we covered we covered all we covered all areas in in, in that respect. We got back to a good one one at halftime, and we knew how crucial the fifty minutes after half to, after half time were. And we were we were never for whatever reason. Obviously, Messi was I think at the peak at that time with Xavi, with Iniesta. Uh, but we also knew that if we could overcome that 15 minutes and we can drag it on to the last 25 to 20 minutes, we would probably have more opportunities bringing other players on to change the game uh, when people start to tire, you know what I mean? And uh, and then hurt them that way. But before we knew, you know, it's, I think, let's, let's be honest, I mean, it was happening for the South's last game, I think. It's one of the games you will never look back on, you know what I mean? Because obviously... The hype and everything goes with it, and, and you know, and you know, those things happen. But um, but yeah, they, they 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 were very good at the time. And you talked about Ronaldo having like goal setting, you know, scoring goals per season. Does that sometimes work against you in terms of you know decision making on the field? With regards to Ronaldo to decision making, that is an important an important part. But again, it's all about again. What is the importance, the awareness and understanding? You know, what is the most important thing? Ronaldo scoring a goal or Man United winning the game? Man United winning the game. Okay. So, therefore, if you get in a goal-scoring position, but Gix is in a far better position, I can tap in, what would you do? Yeah, you square it because you want to win the game. Because the winning the game of Man United was, again, in the bigger scheme of things for Ronaldo, important. Because what do you want to do to become the best player in the world? Are you going to be the best player in the world tomorrow? No. Next week? No. Next month? No. In half a year? No. In a year? Maybe. So what do we need to do? We need to work on those aspects of the game. We need to score more goals because you become more important. Therefore, United is going to win more games. There's no point in you scoring three goals and United lose 4-0, 4-3 because you don't track back. Yeah? So the biggest aim is your scoring goals is, an, is just an... Uh, a tool to get what you want, winning more games. Because the more Man United wins, the more chance we win more titles. The more titles you win because you score the goals, the more important you're going to be. The more chance you will have to be selected best player in the world. So everything adds up and not like anything. So, Is it rather player, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. To making sure that he's still aware of, you know, the, the, the importance of, of the team, the team performance. Jinga's still like that now with him. When you watch him, listen. I, I don't want to be funny, and I, and I have no idea where that bloody discussion has come. But if it, if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for Cristiano Ronaldo and the goals he scored, where would we be? It is just honestly everything that's around him. Because the only thing I would, if I would be involved now with him, I would want him. He's still he's still the predator. He still wants to come in the end phase. I think he needs to start to understand in his face where he is. There should be more appreciation for him to be a, a more important part playing in the game. So what I'm saying is, if Cristiano drops in pockets, he never does anything spectacular. He just pops it off and walks away. But he's a good footballer. He should be, be able to do him much more, but he's got no appreciation for it. Because the only thing he wants is to score goals. But again, you need to start that transition. Cristiano, you, you can be much more important for Man United if your contribution is bigger. But nobody probably has ever addressed that with him. And he doesn't see it. He still sees. Although he's 37, he feels 27. Joe, there's only one. I want to score goals. I want to score. Yes, you will still score the goals. 
maybe less, but you will be more important for the team and it'll be better for United. Obviously you've been involved in United during a, a massive part of the, the history of the club. When in your career have you been presented with massive challenges, whether that's on a professional level for yourself or as a team, and how have you improved the, the morale of the team and the performance of the team? When I left United, and then I ended up uh, initially, first of all, with Gusherink in, in, in Russia, with Anji Machatskara, there's another evening that I can fill here, because <laughs> I just ended up, I thought he ended up in, 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 a, in a bloody movie. Uh, and look at the players that we had there. Samuel Ito'o was there. Diara, uh, Big Samba, that played for QPR. Uh, William, that played for uh, Chelsea, was great, great players. And then suddenly, after two games, Henning just disappeared out of the side door. I was, I was put in place um, as the manager. I was just in the process of bringing the people in that I wanted to bring in. And uh, we had two games. I think we drew them both. I had an international break. I came back. And then the, 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 the strength and conditioning guy who was Belgian, he rang me and he says, have you seen the newspapers? I said, even if I don't see him, I don't speak Russian, so I don't know what's in it. He says, well, the owner at that time, Kerimov, has um, put a stop to everything and put all the big players up for sale because he's lost, I think, 500 million in some dodgy transaction. He was looked after by... By, by, by Interpol at the time, um, what do you do? You, you, you go from, you come from the most secure job where continued stability was there, you didn't have nothing to worry about, suddenly in a very erratic, hectic scenario that you didn't know. Then I went to Fulham. Honestly, they were Fulham, Fulham, no, not coming. Yeah, no, no, not coming. Martin Yo, why is it taking so long? Well, Martin, I've had a look at your squad. It says 80% uh, is pushing 40. A lot of players running out of contract. How are you going to survive? Yeah, no, we'll work it out. We need you here. And Okay, I'll come and help you out because I thought at least I stay in England, stay in the Premier League and I'll help him. I like Martin, good guy. Great. Two games in, Martin is out the door. And I'm. we play West Ham away. We play West Ham away. And uh, that was the first game that Berbatov didn't play or he didn't select him for whatever reason. And we actually played a decent game, but within a spell of 20 minutes, we conceded three goals. So next day, I trained with the players that didn't play. Um, I was just settling in and I was going across the street to the DFS shop to get some furniture sorted. Little did I know. So I go in there and this guy that tries to sell was trying to sell things to me. He kept looking at me like, do I know you from somewhere? So I don't know, maybe. He says, do you like football? He said, yes. He says, uh, who do you support? He says, Man United. Okay. Yeah, you might have seen me around. You fucking Randy Merlinstein. Yeah. Anyway, I got a great, great deal, great discount and all sorts. <laughs> and the phone kept ringing. Alistair McIntosh. I thought, well, he must ring about something else. I ring him back when I got in the car. I get in the car, radio on, talk sport, Jim White. 
and Martin Yoll has left Fulham and Rennie Merlinstein is the new manager of... What? <laughs> Phone, Jim White. I'm not going to answer that. So I rang Alistair McIntosh. Uh, anybody can tell me what's going on here? Yeah, uh, Martin has uh, left the club with mutual consent. Da -da -da. Oh, well, but I'll find that out. We'll speak to you later. Ring Martin Yoll. Martin, what's happening? Yeah, no, well, you know how it goes in football. And I still don't know whether he's left or whether he got sacked or whatever it was. He says, I just, I just ran out of energy. I can't, I, I see how the players respond to you and you're in a good position and, and it's better for the club, it's better for me. And, and I thought, what the hell is this? So then I had to sit down with, with, Mac, Mac, Alistair later and I had this lineup where you have the, the two goalkeepers the, the best two right backs left back and all this and I had this and I said the marker pen red pen I said here oh there's a lot of red yeah you know what it means these players are all around 35 years of age above or beyond so if you need to to, to be in the, in, in, in the Premier League and be successful you need one quality secondly you need energy you need legs. They don't have legs. That's why you can see. You can see goals every time in the last 20 minutes of the game. And you need commitment. And the ones with the, with the cross behind it, all the contracts are running out. Now, you tell me of these guys who's going to fight for the relegation for me here. That's what's one of the reasons why he didn't want to come in the first place. Well, okay. Well, there you are. Now, then you start to try to rebuild. Was Hoff and Puff. Yeah. Winning against Aston Villa, losing there, uh, another loss, winning against West Ham, another draw, lose there. But you were there. In the 13 games that I managed, Fulham, I think it was 13, 10 of those games were in the top 10. Only three were, you know, below there. The last eight games of the league, there was only one team in the top five. So the rest, seven, they were below there or even around us. And you, you, you start to calculate, well, hold on a minute. doesn't matter if we are not too. That's where you, we can get the profit. So then you start to bring in the players that you need. And then, you know, I think we had a sequence of obviously drawing 2-2 against um, Man United at Old Trafford. And three days later, we played uh, Liverpool. one all up, 1-1, 2-1 up, 2-2. And in the 93rd minute, we conceded that penalty which we should have never, never conceded. Um, and then we had a break. And all the way up to then, all the way up to then, we didn't have no break. It was constantly Saturday, Tuesday, uh, Saturday, Wednesday, and all that. We had no break. We couldn't give no time. And I had no time to work. Because you play, you recover. You're then two days before the game. You can only, you know, start bit by bit, starting to push things together. When players have no contracts, the only thing, there is a lot of doubt. You know what I mean? Are they going to get, you know, and all that? crap you had to deal with. So those are all things. I mean, it's a massive learning curve for me because I came from an environment. Uh, none, none, of, none of that shit. We just turn up. I help the players get them prepared. We win, we go home, we celebrate off to the next game. This was totally different. But I've always stick to my principles and values. Every, everywhere I've went. Even if I went, when, when I went to Brunby. Even when I went to Israel with Haifa or Keller Blasters in thing. The one thing where I was most bitter about was Fulham. When when they, I felt really betrayed when they did what they did. All right, final question. Please, I'm thirsty. 
Chris, get him behind the bar, way. <laughs> so if a young 16-year-old Renny came through the door, what advice would you give him as a coach? Yeah, no, that's good. And, and like I said, uh, I've always been big on, on helping young uh, young people because I was myself. I was once, and I always felt you need to you need to invest for sure. For first, you need to study and and and, and get to know as much as what's out there. But then also form form your own opinion, your vision. I mean, like I said, why 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 did I go with wheel curve and not because I thought it was Flash or something. I believed in it, and I believed in his messaging. And I knew he got criticised by the Dutch KNVB, and that was all crap and all this and that and the other. And, and that had all to do with the way that Wheel was trying to get it across. So that is one thing. I mean, invest, invest in knowledge. You have to put as a young coach. You have to put your 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 hours in, because like I said, I was I was I was always on the on the football pitch while I was training myself coaching myself or I was helping somebody else to coach because when you coach the more you coach young kids and everything you you can make all the mistakes in the world and you get better at it you get more confident out of it um, communication is a big thing you learn, learn how to communicate you need to learn how to communicate with different age groups because you speak to 18 year olds different than 8 year olds and you have to unlock, like I said unlock opportunities for yourself so you have to try to meet the right people that can help you and if, if there is a door locked, then great, don't turn around, find another way in. Be determined about it and be clear. The biggest thing is try to determine really what you want because if you've got that clear in your head, if, if I know where I want to go, then I can plan my journey and know how to get there. Whether that is walking, by bike, by car, by train, by plane, whatever, depending where the destination is. But if I know where I'm going, then the next thing is, if you've got that aim clear in your head, you need to know, okay, what do we need to do? So I like to become, I I, always, I had it broad, but I, I still think I've, I've written it down somewhere. And and, and, and and forget me for saying this, but I wanted to one, make my make my living in football as a professional coach. And eventually I wanted to coach Real Madrid. Just dream as big as you can. Is that realistic? No, it isn't. So because you haven't even got the qualification. So what do you need to do? Qualifications. And you got up the ladder. Then I started to work in Qatar. Up, oh, blah, 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 blah. Then I started to manage in Qatar and won a few prizes. Great. Then Man United came. Skills developed. So I got closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. And if you have that, all those things, because then you put purpose to what you do. And if you've got purpose, you've got direction. And resilience. Don't be afraid. You, you will, you will, some things don't come off. Don't get disheartened. Like I said, keep going. Keep going. The universe will reward you, as Chris has done. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>